I'm James Gould, and you're listening to The Recess Course. Today, we're going to be talking about the patient in labor. Pregnancy-related emergencies are the epitome of halo events for the emergency physician. And there's really no other situation where you can suddenly double your caseload. Given how much sheer information there is with this topic, we're going to break this into two separate podcasts. Part one, we will cover the actual delivery of a baby in the emergency department. And then in part two, we'll discuss some of the complications that can happen, like postpartum hemorrhage, shoulder dystocia, breech delivery, and cord prolapse. We're really lucky today to have Hannah Weimer on the show. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Dalhousie University, and she has an interest in obstetrics and women's health and does the vast majority of our teaching at our tertiary center for emergency physicians and residents as it relates to obstetrics and women's health. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Jane. All right, well, let's jump right into it. So we'll start with a case. It is 11 p.m. You're in a busy community emergency department when EMS arrives with a 26-year-old pregnant patient. She's complaining of significant abdominal pain. Her vital signs are as follows on the chart. Heart rate of 85, blood pressure is 130 on 82. Her respiratory rate is 18, and her SATs are 99% on room air. While en route to hospital, she had a rupture of membranes of clear fluid. She has been having waves of pain at home and thought she might be in labor is why she called DHS, but the pain progressed much quicker than her prior pregnancies. So she's now arrived in your department. Hannah, what are your immediate thoughts on hearing this case? So listening to that case, I think you have to take a big picture perspective. And first of all, ask, is this patient in labor or is there something else going on? So certainly given that limited history, but that history of rhythmic waves of pain and suspected rupture of membranes certainly makes me think labor is, is one of my top differentials. But you also want to think about things like other intra-abdominal pathologies, potentially a trauma case. Could this be an abruption? A few questions that can rapidly help us sort out the situation is asking how far along this patient is in pregnancy. How frequent and strong are the contractions? And what was the timing of rupture of membranes? Other important questions would be if there's been any vaginal bleeding and if the patient is feeling an urge to push. Uh, assuming that we do think that this patient's in labor, the next thing we want to know is, is, is this a high-risk pregnancy? Every delivery that we do in the emergency department is unplanned and therefore inherently high-risk. If the patient has known problems in this pregnancy or has had known problems in previous pregnancies, that makes our delivery in the eMERGE even more risky. And, and another thing that a patient might not know, especially if they haven't had prenatal care, is how far along they are and what their baby is head down. That's, again, another thing that helps us with our risk assessment. So something that can be very helpful in this early stage is grabbing your bedside ultrasound, just checking baby's size and seeing if the head is down. And then the last question, again, going along with the assumption that this patient is in labor is, do I have time to transfer this patient to a better setting in a labor and delivery suite where they do this every day? Or is this patient going to deliver in our department? Everybody would obviously be much more comfortable having this delivery happen in an obstetric setting. But sometimes we really just don't have that kind of time. Uh, in our department in Halifax, we see about one unexpected delivery per, per year. But that number has been rising. And some of our community centers see two to three unexpected deliveries per year. 
So we really need these basic skills to be able, be able to provide maternal and neonatal care for both a normal delivery and if any complications arise. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So what kind of stuff, space, staff are you preparing? What are, what are all the things that you need to get ready for this type of patient, assuming that they're in labor? So ideally, you've had some practice with this scenario or you've thought about it beforehand. One of the great things to have, and James, I know you're a big advocate of this, is having set bundles or carts for these types of scenarios. Ideally, you do have a delivery bundle available, but if not, what you're going to need is at least two Kelly clamps, a pair of scissors, some sort of bowl or container for the placenta. Uh, a nice to have thing is a tube to record blood, but that's not essential. And ideally, you have a plastic umbilical cord clamp. You're also going to need lots of towels. And ideally, a sterile gloves and sterile gown. You should have a radiant warmer that's ready and you bring this into the room as soon as you hear that the patient might be in labor and turn it on. Because we really want to keep baby at a nice warm temperature. Ideally, a temperature of 36.5 to 37.5 degrees is where we want baby to be because we know hypothermia is a, is a really big a problem and very common complication after the baby's born if they need resuscitation. Ideally in the room too, we have all of our neonatal and adult resuscitation equipment, which would include all of our airway and vascular access supplies. In terms of the space, so the space should ideally be a space where you have a gynae stretcher because most patients will deliver in the dorsal lithotomy position. And ideally you put this patient in a recess room because again, if you do end up having to run two tandem resuscitations, you really want that space. You also want space for your ultrasound. You want good lighting. You want oxygen suction. And all these things are available in a recess room. And again, you want that temperature in the room turned up, ideally before and before the baby is delivered. In terms of staff, this is one of those recesses where you want as many hands on deck as possible in a controlled manner because you might potentially have two resuscitations, but you know you're going to have two patients at some point, unless you have twins and then you've got even, even more hands. So ideally you have a second physician and one of one physician is for mom and one physician is going to be the dedicated to baby. You want at least two nurses and ideally you call down respiratory therapy as well. RT is often quite familiar with neonatal resuscitation procedures. So that's, that's a really good person to have in the room. And here you want to call for help early. So in our center, we don't have in-house obstetrics. So you want to activate your, your transport team, which in our case was EHS Life Flight. You want to contact your obstetrician. And you may also want to contact neonatology or pediatrics on call, as well as potentially anesthesia, really depending a bit on the scenario and the time you have. Yeah. Yeah, that's so key, th those extra people to come. You know, in our institution where you and I both work in Halifax as an adult emergency department, it's been a while since I've seen you know, any children that weren't either my own or, or ones that have been delivered in our department. Uh, but RT just has such a wealth of experience mm -hmm. in managing pediatrics. And the other one for us is we have our critical care paramedics in the department and either, you know, they're either currently working as a ground ambulance paramedic as well, or they have previously and they've, you know, cared for children um, in these kind of scenarios. So, you know, those are just such a valuable resource for us. All right. So, the patient is in the recess room. The vitals are really unchanged from what we described before. That bedside ultrasound that you wanted revealed a fetal skull in the down position. Mom gives you a bit of history, says this is her third pregnancy. It has been uncomplicated to date. And she was planning to travel to the city for induction tomorrow. 
So baby's baby's ready to go. What's your approach to further examining this mom and sort of planning around the next steps of of this delivery? Yeah. So here again, we want to get a really quick sense of how far along this pregnancy is. If mom knows, that's great. But we'd like to confirm that with palpating the abdomen. So as a quick rule of thumb, if the fundus is at the umbilicus, we're at 20 weeks. And above the umbilicus, we likely have a viable pregnancy. It grows by one centimeter and one finger breadth every week of gestation. So up until 37 weeks, 36, 37 is when it's going to reach the xiphoid. As the patient becomes closer to labor, the fundus is actually going to drop as the head engages in the pelvis. So it might just be a few finger breaths below the xiphoid if the patient's at term. So assuming that we palpated what we think is a, a term gravid abdomen, we next want to do an internal exam. Assuming we, we know or have no suspicion for a low-line placenta or placenta previa, we then want to check for cervical effacement, dilation, station, and presentation. In a fully effaced cervix, which means that patient's ready to deliver this baby, means that it's tissue thin. So how we're going to express this is as a percentage. So 100% fully effaced. That's If they're at that stage, we know, we know they're quite close or ready to push. Dilation, I think, is what we're probably most familiar with. So this is how large the cervical opening is. And it's measured in centimeters and fully is 10 centimeters. The station is the relationship with the presenting part, which in this case is a head, in comparison to the ischial spines. And we measure this in centimeters from minus three to plus three. And when most women are ready to push, that presenting part's going to be at zero. So at the level of the ischial spines, we're up to plus two. So it's going to, again, be well engaged in the pelvis. The presentation is really the presenting anatomic part, which we're hoping is going to be the head. And in 95% of cases, it is going to be an occiput or vertex presentation with occiput anterior being the most common. This might be a little bit tricky for us, but if we want to figure out if baby's facing occiput anterior, we can try to palpate 360 degrees to feel the fetal suture lines. So if we feel a triangle or three sutures, that tells us that we're dealing with the posterior fontanelle. And so we want that to be up. And then four sutures or a diamond shape is the anterior fontanelle. And we'd hope that that's facing down the most uncomplicated type of vaginal delivery. Awesome. Triangle up, diamond down. Yeah, perfect. In terms of, you know, contractions and how frequent they are, I know that relates to how soon someone is going to deliver. Let's say her contractions are every four to five minutes. On your tests and your exam, it appears that the membranes have ruptured and she reported that on the way in. She's 100% effaced with eight to 10 centimeters dilated and minus two centimeters station with vertex presentation. Would you transport this patient? How do you decide? Are there any sort of guidelines that we can use around that? Yeah, so this becomes a really difficult decision in some cases, specifically when you're relatively close to a center. If you know transport times are going to be delayed, then you know that you're probably going to have this patient deliver. But it is a complicated decision. And some of the factors that you mentioned, so cervical dilation, how quickly it's changing, even on your serial exams, how strong those contractions are, the membranes, and how many prior deliveries this patient has had all play, play into that decision along with the transport times. So it's really a clinical decision and it's a collaborative decision as well. We have reproductive care program guidelines from Nova Scotia. In 2018, they tell us that transfer of a patient should not be attempted 
if it is suspected that birth may occur en route. And this is because, for obvious reasons, delivery during transfer is even higher risk than in an emergency setting. So ideally, in this scenario, if we know that labor is well underway and we think that this patient will give birth shortly, this would be the, the scenario where, in, in fact, we are going to have to do an emergency delivery. When we're making this decision, it's really important to involve your transport team. So I would be calling the life flight medical consulting physician and the consulting obstetrician and, and neonatal team as well, have their input in the decision, and then potentially they can start preparing transport, sending people over, and also providing advice over the phone if we run into any difficulties. Yeah, that's great. So, I mean, this is a very painful event for this patient. How would you treat that? Opioids, as I understand, cross the blood-brain barrier, and obviously we don't want the baby to come out apneic if we are to give a, a lot of opioids. What, what's your approach there? Yeah, so again, this is a, a tricky situation because we want something that's fast-acting. We know mom's in a lot of pain, but we don't want to cause complications in an already fraught delivery situation. So the 2016 SOGC guidelines for the management of spontaneous labor at term in healthy women. So that's important to remember, term and healthy. They tell us that women can safely be medicated with opioids just before birth without significant respiratory depression in the newborn. And as a caveat to that, this assumes that the care team understands the indications, limitations, and side effects of these drugs so that any adverse maternal and fetal outcomes are minimized. So fentanyl is, is a good choice for intrapartum analgesia, partly because of its fast onset of action, but also its short half-life. So for mom, the half-life is less than one hour, and for the neonate, it's one to six. A 2018 Cochrane review found that parenteral opioids, both IV and IM, provided some pain relation labor. They are associated, however, with maternal side effects of nausea, vomiting, and drowsiness. Unfortunately, the studies included in this review were of low quality, so we don't have the strongest evidence. But in this review, they found no clear evidence of adverse effects of opioids in the newborn. And that being said, we do know that neonatal side effects may include decreased heart rate variability and respiratory depression, particularly if there are cumulative doses and large doses given. So they're dose-dependent and timing-dependent. I think an important thing to know in the latest version of the NRP guidelines is that naloxone is no longer recommended routinely as part of the algorithm, even if we suspect opioid-related respiratory depression. So instead, they do recommend that any infant with an apnea or inadequate respiratory drive for whatever reason, that they all be managed the same way, which is with respiratory support using positive pressure ventilation as needed. Oh, that's a great pearl. Okay, so let's say that soon after the pain sort of worsens, you note that the head of the baby is now crowning. Clearly, this, this patient is in labor and is progressing quite quickly towards delivery. Are there any sort of signs that birth is imminent? So that it's, you know, it's going to happen within the next sort of few minutes? Yeah, and, and I think this is something important for us to recognize because, again, we may be coming in with a patient. We don't know that they're pregnant. They might not know they're pregnant. So these are some of the, the signs that we might see. So sometimes patients will develop a sense of panic or it might start suddenly vomiting or having severe nausea. One of the classic signs would be an urge to push or an urge to defecate. And oftentimes, if they know they're pregnant, they will tell you the baby is coming or the baby is moving down. When you examine the patient, you'll see bulging of the perineum and rectum and 
potentially bulging membranes with each push. And you might also see an uncontrollable passage of stool at this point. And this would all happen just before you see crowning of that fetal presenting part. So, you know, now we're to the point where it's this is a precipitous delivery in the emergency department. How do you prepare in that moment? So what are you saying to your team? You know, what sort of supplies are you gathering in that immediate moment? Yeah, so if you've had a, a time to gather your team, this is where you want everybody in the room. All you need at this point is gloves on, ideally a gown and some towels, then some clamps, scissors, and something to clamp the umbilical cord with. That's really all you need as a bare minimum at this stage. You want the patient placed in the dorsal lithotomy position, and you want one person that might be family member or somebody in your care team to support each of the patient's legs. And at this point, the most important thing is that you stay with the patient at all times and that you model a very calm, comforting attitude. You want the patient to be comfortable and you want your team to be comfortable. And telling the patient something like, we've got this, we've got you, we're going to take care of you and your baby will help, again, calm your nerves, but also help calm the patient who's obviously delivering this scenario that they never anticipated. Yeah, you set the pace. Well said. So the baby's coming. Could you describe the steps of a a normal delivery? Like, let's say this goes in the best way it possibly could. How does that look? Yeah, so you, again, have now a patient who is fully dilated in their cervix and their cervix is fully effaced. So every time that they're feeling a contraction, you want them to start pushing and sustain each push with each contraction and then take a break as the contraction passes away. And then once you see the, the trailing happen, this is where you want this, the one hand on the bottom of the perineum, supporting the perineum with the towel and stretching it as that crowning part essentially stretches the perineum. Then we're preparing for delivery of the head. So we want this to be a controlled delivery of the head. And so we don't want the, the head to rocket out of the vagina. So what we do is we support the perineum using your non-dominant hand. So for me, my left hand will be on the bottom supporting the perineum. And then the top hand is supporting the fetal head and controlling the delivery of the head to prevent any significant tears. Once the baby's head is out, we're going to look around the neck, check for any nuclear cord, and reduce it by simply slipping it flipping the loop of cord over the baby's head. This is quite a common complication. And again, we always want to check for a second loop if there's one present. As the head delivers, what's going to happen is the head will restitute. So it's going to turn towards one maternal thigh. And so at this point, we move our hands so that we're supporting either side of the head. So now head is out, neck is out, and now we've got an anterior shoulder to deliver. So in order to deliver this anterior shoulder, we're going to exert gentle downwards pressure. And we want it to be gentle because we don't want any brachial plate plexus injuries. So again, gentle downwards pressure, anterior shoulder is out. Gentle upwards pressure, posterior shoulder comes out. And then the rest of the baby's body will come out easily. Again, we'll assess the baby and move on to our next steps. Just like that. Easy peasy. Easy peasy. What what are you going to do next? Baby's out and uh, you have one of your team members grabbing baby. And what are the next steps in management? Yeah, so here is is now where we have a quick assessment, which again, we're good at. We're good at sick versus not sick. And this is our sick versus not sick assessment of the neonate. So what we need to know is, does this baby look term? Does it have good tone? And is it breathing or crying? And if it's yes to all of those, this baby's 
probably fine. We don't likely need to do any resuscitation. What we can do is with a vigorous baby, place it immediately on mom's chest, skin to skin, so no clothes on mom and baby underneath some towels. But And then we can wait and delay cord clamping for about 60 seconds is what our latest guidelines are recommending. If baby is not vigorous, so if we're answering no to some of those questions, we want to immediately clamp the cord, cut the cord, and move the baby over to the warmer and start our NRP algorithm. What our job is going to be as the physician dedicated towards mom is next to deliver the placenta. So baby's out, but we still have a placenta. So the placenta tends to separate within 5 to 15 minutes, upwards of 20 minutes, and beyond that it's prolonged. Some signs that the placenta is going to separate is if we see a sudden gush of blood or a sudden lengthening of the cord, our uterus will become firm and globular. So what we're going to do is we're going to, again, have one clamp that's still attached to the umbilical cord. We're not going to pull on it. We're just going to, again, feel for that lengthening. And then when it does come out, just support it coming out. Once the placenta has been removed, we want to inspect it to make sure that it's all in one piece. Then we want to massage the fundus of the uterus to start stimulating uterine contractions. And we also want to make sure at this point we have a little bit of time to examine the vagina see if there have been any significant vaginal or cervical lacerations that were sustained during the delivery. The other piece, so the medication piece that we now have is oxytocin. And we know oxytocin is really important and there are a few time points where we can give it. If we're really organized, we can give it with delivery of the anterior shoulder. But two other timestamps that we can potentially give it would be just after birth of the baby or just after delivery of the placenta. And it's really important because we, we know that postpartum hemorrhage is one of the most potentially highest risk events for maternal mortality, and we want to prevent this. And oxytocin is going to stimulate uterine contractions and help us avoid this hemorrhage in the first hour after delivery. As a dosing, so if we don't have IV access, it's 10 units intramuscular. If we do have an IV, the dose is 20 to 40 international units in one liter of saline given at 100 to 125 cc's per hour. It's important that we do not give this as an IV push medication, so it's either IM or as an IV infusion, because it can cause significant hypotension if we give it IV push. So that brings us to the end of the podcast. Is there any final words of wisdom that you want to impart on our listeners? So I think it's important to remember that although this may be a halo event for us, this is something that happens very often. So just to remember that it's important to go through those basic steps to assist with the delivery. But in most cases, both mom and baby are going to be fine and just model that calm, reassuring environment so that this birth is a positive experience in your emerge. Yeah, that's such a great pearl. All right. Thank you so much for being here and we'll see you for part two. Thanks for having me.